man, I really should have when you said privacy, because I, I don't know what that word is, and uh, <laughs> North Americans are not going to be familiar with it. Welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM, as we do every single week, and on Saga 960 AM out of the Peel region, Ontario, Canada. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting to you from uh, the sweltering summer studio here in Vienna, Austria. And uh, my normal co-host, David, is out for the week, but I'm very privileged to have our very talented colleague, who is... Uh, also doing great stuff and has his own program called The Consumer, Mr. Bill Vietz. Bill, welcome to the radio show. It's fantastic to be with you, yeah. So, Bill, uh, you follow a lot of great news. Um, again, I mentioned your program uh, that people can listen to. We also link to his program if you guys are interested on our website, consumerchoiceradio.com. And we've got some great interviews coming up. In the first segment, we're going to speak with Bart Madden. Uh, he is a great entrepreneur, uh, someone who's been doing financial analysis for something around 40 or 50 years, and he comes out with a great article about reforms to the FDA and how we can actually supercharge the FDA to get drug approvals going through more quickly. And then we have Ashley Baker of the Committee for Justice giving us updates on all things antitrust, the courts, and why those things matter. So, Bill, you're a resident um, farming and agriculture expert, and uh, particularly for our listeners in North Carolina, and there are some in rural Ontario, you know, agriculture is a big thing. It's very important. And something you've been writing about the last few years is basically the plethora of bad ideas around agriculture, around farming policy in Europe. But it seems as if uh, there are attempts to try to do this stateside. Uh, give us some update on what this is about. Well, yeah, European agriculture is basically that one, like that one cousin you have that believes that we should all have our communal garden and share everything and not use any of the modern technology. That's basically European agriculture. It's this nostalgic idea how we should um, have our food run, our food system run. And uh, as a result of that, Europe has spent a lot more money on agriculture over the years. The European Union spends a lot more money on farm subsidies um, compared to the United States. And that is because farming is considerably more inefficient. Because if you don't use crop protection methods, if you don't use uh, um, pesticides, if you don't use genetic engineering, it's actually way harder uh, to make food. Because for all the talk about food needing to be natural, people sometimes forget that nature is not always kind to us and it destroys our crops and it has a bunch of diseases that we want to prevent. And uh, and that over time has extended our life expectancy. Like using modern technology has increased our life expectancy. So this is unfortunately something that we've realized over the years now in Europe is just a lot of bad policy accumulating. And there's people in the United States that want to replicate that. Um, there's this legislation looming in Congress called PACTPA, which is, uh, you know, Americans have these long acronyms, and I don't remember all of them, but ultimately it wants to copy-paste all of the EU food rules um, to the U.S. And what that would mean 
is that a lot of the chemicals that farmers use to protect their crops and protect the health of consumers would be banned. Also, that genetic modification rules that are way more lenient in the United States, those also would be outlawed. Even though that American researchers were involved in developing these technologies, now they would be outlawed as well. Now, if the intent of these of this piece of legislation was to say, well, we need to at least align our food rules so we can have free trade between the US and Europe. I could see some sort of an argument to be made here. I could see like, okay, there's, there's some good intentions here to have increased trade. But that's not even the intention. They want, uh, they, they don't want any more trade. They just want to copy paste all these rules because they don't believe in modern technology. And I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of problems coming up for consumers there because it means that you have less food safety and food security and these two terms are different food safety is the fact that you can eat something and you you can trust that it's that's that, that it's not bad for you and the other thing is food security which means how much food is available and how uh, and how stable are the prices that you pay in the supermarket so i think there's a lot to to discuss here for for americans over the years to come with these kind of legislations continuously being proposed. And I think they should take a close look at Europe and what experiences we've made in Europe. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one advantage that I've noticed um, having bounced between a few of the countries, just the cost of food overall, the amount of food, uh, the types of innovative foods that are uh, widespread throughout the United States and then quickly get adopted at places like Burger King and KFC. And, you know, we're still waiting uh, to have in many parts of Europe. So I, I could imagine that if we were to take a lot of the rules, particularly the bad ones uh, that the Europeans have, and, and try to implement them in the in the states, that would hard. It would. I mean, it would not only be consumers who'd be harmed. It'd be a lot of farmers, uh, be traditional agricultural types, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs and innovators who used to use our great innovative system to come up with new solutions. Uh, seems that this would probably hamstring them and uh, not make things fun on the food market and in your uh, supermarket alley. Absolutely. And I think what is always amazing to me when I go to the United States is the plethora of choices that are available to consumers and, and also how available food is at all times. And, and, and also this idea that food in the US is unsafe. We had that whole conversation when we had a, you know, this, this negotiation over the TTIP agreement. This was a trade agreement being negotiated from starting in 2010 between the US and, 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 and Europe. And it failed on the European side because Europeans thought that all Americans just eat very unhealthily and, you know, the food is just not safe. But, you know, Europeans traveling to the United States, they eat in the restaurants and they don't have any problem with that whatsoever. So it's only if you're a tourist and you can afford to go to either places that you feel safe doing it, apparently. But if it's in your shops, then you really don't want it. And I think there's some... Some some inconsistencies there on on, on the on the whole narrative. So you're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with Bill Vietz. He's my co-host for today's program. As David is out, uh, you can listen to uh, Bill's program. If you're interested in all things Europe and European politics on Consumer, we'll link to that in all of the show notes and everything in the podcast version. You guys can find that, and you can follow Bill on Twitter. Quite a uh, funny follow. Uh, he is at Wirtz, Bill, W-I-R-T-Z-B-I-L-L. All right, Bill, I got a couple other topics and things I, I had come across my desk um, from my you know huge group of producers that are behind me, uh, meaning none. Uh, one thing that I find very interesting is there's some debate about, there's always this debate about China, and there's the Olympics going on, and uh, China is like leading the scoreboards. Uh, by the way, for listeners who don't know, Bill is from Luxembourg, 
Um, do you actually know uh, if Luxembourg has gotten any medals this time? I'm, I'm sure that would have been like top of the news there. I don't follow the Olympics closely enough, but I think, you know, with a country of just, uh, just 600,000 people, I think it's difficult to produce the, the stars that could bring home the gold medal, I think. I don't know. Hong Kong. I don't know how many people are in Hong Kong, but they've got two medals so far. Let's see. We've got some other small countries here. Fiji has a medal. Uh, Kazakhstan's got three medals. Yeah, don't, take, don't take my arguments away. <laughs> but, I mean, Luxembourg, Luxembourg is used to say, by the way, we could never qualify for any of these football championships because we're too small of a country. And then Iceland, half the population of Luxembourg, scored very well in previous championships. So, yeah, we've been kind of sticking to the narrative that, like, ah, oh, we're too small of a country. But ultimately, yeah, I think we, we, we could probably do a bit better. Even Kosovo has two medals. So, you, you know, stuff's going on there. Uh, one thing I'm interested in us following that, and we're, we're big into innovation of companies and you know there are different apps that we've used and there's a good number of them that are coming out of china now and there's this whole battle about the chinese listing of firms i don't know how much you followed this but i'm interested in your take what what should be the kind of approach whenever we see like a large chinese company institution financial firm you know funny app you know what is your kind of first thought uh, when this stuff starts to be a bit popular and people start adopting it because uh, a lot of these apps would love to make money uh, but I'm, I'm reacting here mostly to there's an article by uh, noah smith he's uh, originally a bloomberg i think he left to do his own Substack, uh, but he talks about how china is basically obliterating its own tech industry they're not allowing these companies to go ipo to list they're trying to ban them from the u.s there's all kinds of crazy stuff. I don't know, Bill. I'm not sure if you've uh, you know crossed with these fellows up there in uh, in Luxembourg, but I'm wondering your thoughts on that. Well, in in China, it's generally complicated to understand what is uh, a government-run or owned company and what is private, because even even many of the privately run companies they still have bureaus of the Chinese Communist Party within within their within their company. I know that Huawei has like a, an entire office where you have these commissars and they decide what's what's allowed and what's not allowed. It's really hard to tell exactly. And, and, you know, as they always say, like China knows, but China doesn't tell. And the thing, the thing here is that consumers ultimately, yes, if you want to adopt an app, if you want to download it and use it, that's all fine and good. But I think there should be some awareness because for all the conversation about social media networks misusing your data and data leaks and everything and people being outraged about that, and, and rightfully so, I think there's sometimes just not enough care with, with, with Chinese developers being on the market. And, and there we just overlook that. And I think while the millennial generation seems to be still fairly interested because, you know, we got to see the whole Snowden incident and we uh, thought that the, the NSA was spying on everyone and that's a bad thing and the U.S. government should stop doing that. I'm not sure if Gen Z is really on the case on that and, and what it would take for Gen Z to, to actually also um, um, realize this as a problem. Ultimately, I think the understanding needs to be that, that that China generally, with its approach to privacy, cannot be trusted. Because if you look at how the Chinese treat their own people, then we should also be very careful about uh, any Chinese company uh, uh, operating elsewhere. That doesn't mean we need to ban everyone. Um, that doesn't mean we need to have a general hostility. But it does require some care. Um, and, 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 and I think that's very important for consumers to make those decisions by themselves. But I think it's good, for instance, if you go on the App Store, if you use an, an iPhone, is that 
Apple actually gives you the the authorizations that a certain app would would receive, and you know it doesn't. It it, it it's sensible to me to scroll through that and ask yourself, does this app actually need to record my audio, for instance? And and I think these these kind of that that awareness is, I think, what consumers should really be uh, attentive to. Man, I really should have when you said privacy, because I I don't know what that word is, and uh, <laughs> North Americans are not going to be familiar with it. Uh, yeah, no, you bring up a good point, and. You know, for a lot of this, it is driven by, you know, the Generation Z or Z, you know, sort of the new up-and-comers who are using this stuff. Uh, they don't really care about where it comes from. They just care if it, you know, does it work? And is it fun? And are my friends there? I think that that's a huge thing. And my own experiences and experiments with uh, putting together, you know, little social media sites and mastodons have not been successful. I think principally for those reasons, because it's all about where the network is, where the people are. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. So, Bill, we've got a couple minutes here before we go to our first interview in our break. Um, I wanted to quote from something and uh, get your take here because I think this is very pertinent to uh, both our listeners in North Carolina and in Ontario. Playing poker, roulette, a slot machine in a bar, or your regular lottery ticket. When it comes to gambling, there are many options. Is it fair that gambling has a bad reputation? Is there enough due diligence from the side of the operators? And who benefits from the business of and with luck? So this is that an sounds familiar. Yeah, this is an article that you wrote uh, over there for the Luxen, Luxenberger uh, Journal, I think. Is, yeah, that's what you call Journal, it. yes. Exactly. So um, you do a lot of reporting there in your home country. And gambling is a big topic in, uh, in sort of our country. It's things that are we're debating all of the time. What did you kind of learn from hang, hanging out at the casinos? I mean, uh, what a job where you can get paid to go hang out at the casino and write a paper about it or write, <laughs> write a story about it. Uh, but what, what did you learn? You know, is there something that we can kind of glean from this to hopefully help out our countries too? I was fascinating on, on a personal experience because I'm not a big casino goer, but I didn't realize that on a Monday at 4 p.m. there would be this many people in the casino. And casinos, at least, you know, where I live... Um, are sort of a not not just it's not just about gambling it's also kind of a social event and you know uh, having connections so it's more of the elderly population that uses the standard casinos and young people do online gambling now in luxembourg online gambling uh, is not allowed that that means that no companies can can operate in luxembourg suggesting like these services to consumers but of course uh, you can do it in in other countries there is I mean, it all depends on what you're talking about because you have your standard poker and roulette and and so on, but then you also have the lottery tickets. And one thing that I really found fascinating is that there's these lottery companies that suggest tickets that aren't real tickets. So, for instance, in Europe, we have something called Euro Millions. That This is like the super jackpot. I think the U.S. has this as well. You buy a lottery ticket and you have access to a jackpot of maybe like 200 million euros that you can win. It's because all these lotteries band together uh, in Europe and, and create these tickets. Now, there's private operators that sell tickets that are also Euro Millions tickets. And these are not actual tickets. This is just a bet on the ticket. And these companies, they get insurance from companies, from other, from other insurance companies, in order to make sure that they can pay out the actual gain if you win. So in essence, you don't buy a ticket. You make a bet on the result of the lottery. And the company you buy it from makes a bet with an insurance company that you don't win. And there's some fraudulent stuff going on there because it's not really apparent to consumers what they're actually buying there. And I think in the gambling space, 
I, I think gambling sh should be available and legal, but I think in the gambling space, unfortunately, just out of the history of, of the entire industry, there's a lot of fraudulent stuff going on. And I think that's what we should really focus on because if gambling gets a bad reputation by virtue of who it is run by and to, to what end, then all gambling will be thrown in the same pot. And I think that's very bad. I think gambling is a, is, it's, it's a, I mean, you can describe it as a vice, but it's also fun and it's, a, it's something you should do responsibly. And, uh, and there should be availability of these products because otherwise people do it in places where it's even less safe. What, there's gambling going on there? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I like that. I have many more things I would love to respond to, but we got to hit the break. Uh, thank you, Bill, for sitting in. We've got uh, Ashley Baker, and we'll have Bart Madden coming on next. So, Bill, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you. And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM and Saga, 9.60 AM in the Peel region, Toronto, Canada. We're speaking with Ashley Baker here on the program. She's the Director of Public Policy at the Committee for Justice and our go-to source for all things court and justice related. Ashley, thanks so much for coming back on the program. Thank you for having me again. So now a three-time guest, David, uh, she's, uh, she's hitting the leaderboard here, which is very good. Uh, so we, we have a couple things to discuss and talk about, Ashley, but I want to go back to basics because we hear in the news lately that uh, Biden and uh, in Congress, there are sweeping proposals on antitrust and everything related to antitrust, to companies, to breaking them up, uh, to making sure that they don't do this, that they don't do that. We have to go back to the basics and to say, what is the goal of antitrust laws and legislation? You uh, wrote a piece on this in the paragraph. We'll link to that in our show notes. But if you could describe it to our listeners, what is the goal of antitrust overall? And why is that important for these modern debates? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's, it's a good time to, to kind of take a step back and look at some of the fundamentals. There's a lot going on in antitrust law right now, and um, a, a lot of things are kind of being put under the banner of antitrust and competition. Um, and you mentioned goal as a singular term. You know, if you ask the neo-Brandeisian school of thought really likes to try to use antitrust for a lot of other purposes, whether that's um, income equality, redistribution of wealth, the environment, um, you know, name any sort of policy cause there. And, you know, that's really an enforcement objective, but they don't have a, you know, an anchor, a guiding goal. And that's where the Chicago School, on the other hand, and through the work of Robert Bork and others, um, the consumer welfare standard is what keeps um, antitrust law kind of tethered to one objective path. And that's through um, protecting consumers, through promoting the competitive process more broadly. Oh, and uh, I, I did want to give you praise for one second. Uh, I did pick up this beauty, The Antitrust Paradox. Uh, figured you, uh, you would be interested in this book. I've, I've seen you uh, recommend this along with others. So uh, I'm in the know. I haven't started it yet, but uh, I've got plenty of other readings to do beforehand. You should. There, there aren't many books that most 450 page books should be about 150 pages, could be easily be shortened. Um, Antitrust Paradox doesn't get enough credit for like it, it really packs a lot in there. It's very well written. Um, so I, I have just one oh, follow up good. question in terms of at least my viewpoint here is it's almost it's almost like we have like a, a an unholy alliance of progressives and populists advocating for the use of antitrust in all sorts of areas where um, 
I mean, from my opinion, they don't apply. And from the court's view, that's kind of slowly playing out depending on the case. I think Facebook was the last one. But I'm just curious as to your thoughts on what is driving the narrative on both sides of that coin, the populist side and the the progressive side. Well, you raise a good point. There are a lot of political undercurrents. And I've pointed this out a couple of times that interest kind of does serve as this sort of microcosm of broader political dynamics. And what you're seeing here is you have kind of more the populist right and people who are angry at tech companies who um, want to use it explicitly for that. Um, and then you have those who have been you know, on that side of the antitrust debate for decades who want to use it for you know a wide variety of objectives um but i think you know on, on the right of center it's more driven by um some of this misconduct by tech companies and you know some of this woke behavior so to speak by corporations and i, I think they have a fair point it's just antitrust law is not the avenue for that yeah that's a an important point and i think for some of the avenues of antitrust uh, many of those efforts will be spearheaded by this new player on the scene uh, Ready Player One, uh, we have Lena Khan. Uh, she uh, was confirmed by a Senate committee as the chair of the uh, Federal Trade Commission uh, that happened back in June, I believe. Uh, she is 32 years old. Oh, wow. Uh, great to see people your age doing much uh, <laughs> grand things on the Hill and uh, potentially changing uh, the fate of, of millions of consumers and people throughout the country. Uh, so what are your thoughts, Ashley, as to uh, Miss Khan, she uh, has someone who's had a lot of uh, things to say about some of the companies that are now being brought up on antitrust violations. And is she someone that uh, we should hold in high regard? Are there ways that we can be skeptical? Is she someone we can count on? Or are there ways that we should beware? Well, there are a couple of things I would like to note about her confirmation, which is that w when she was confirmed, she um, had been nominated to the position of commissioner. Um, it was kind of given that she would be replacing someone, you know, in a bipartisan um, commission who um, was also a Democrat who would pr presumably vote um, in future cases the same way that she would. Um, and, and that's very different than confirming a chair. And while the president does have the authority to elevate a commissioner to tell a chair at any point, um, it has kind of not been noted other than, you know, in one day of a news cycle that the White House really delivered deliberately misled the Senate. Um, hours after she was confirmed as commissioner, it was announced that she would be chair, so they had already made up their minds. Um, and that's really um, out of the norm to present a nominee um, that is not for the position they're being really nominated for. And I think it's really in run around the advising consent process of the Senate. I think she probably would have been confirmed either way. Um, maybe her confirmation hearing would have had different questions because there's a huge difference between being commissioner and being chair, and we're seeing that play out right now. Um, the past two open meetings are open, so to speak, um, held by the FTC, which is a, a new concept. I, I'm glad they're having these meetings, but they've allowed for like four business days in one instance for public input. Um, the public input that was given um, in person or well, virtually now um, was actually given after the votes. Um, so that's a little bit counterintuitive um, and really especially with the first meeting, they rammed things through with a 3-2 vote and um, made some major policy decisions to rescind some prior guidance. And really, she's trying to take the FTC from running at 25 miles per hour to 250. And um, we'll see how long that can sustain itself. So um, looking at her background and some of her statements, um, I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot that is just perfect for 
a democratic administration at this time. Um, she understands a lot of these. She's someone who was an immigrant, uh, went to Yale. Uh, she's written papers on anything related on things related to antitrust and to Amazon. Uh, she's someone who's very well known, at least, and has been in the spotlight. And you say that the the FTC is now going to be going, you know, all these different uh, directions. I remember in the uh, sort of argument about net neutrality and uh, everything related to the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, the idea always was that many of these issues people are discussing should be handled more that by the FTC. Since they're also discussing about net neutrality coming back, can we trust the FTC uh, as well if it, if it comes to that and we start talking about different ways of the government or the state regulating the internet? Um, well, those are two different issues. We, you know, you bring up net neutrality, which did make an appearance in the executive order that came out earlier this month, um, and having the FCC, not the FTC, um, reevaluate the, their um, Title II guidelines that were um, pre-2017. Um, it's, what's interesting about that, though, is you know now it's being framed as a competition problem. If anyone remembers the debate in 2017, it was about blocking and throttling, and the you know the internet was going to load one word at a time. But you know now here we are, and the internet's three times faster. It's cheaper. It's none of those things happened. Not a single one of them, and it's being called a competition problem. And yeah, I mean, we've seen some of these competition arguments. Um, come up um, that kind of seems to be the narrative of the day is that many of these companies are behaving in monopolistic um, ways and I mean there's always the irony of I, I mean Elizabeth Warren is the example I could think of where she'll tweet about how monopolistic Facebook is um, failing to see the irony in her own tweet um, but are there any cases where you see that there may actually be some merit um, or generally speaking, when we're talking about, let's say, tech companies, there's enough competition or healthy competition between platforms, or there's there aren't barriers to entry. Um, so I'm just interested to see if you can think of any examples where there may actually be merit for the use of antitrust. Of course, you know there are hypothetically cases where where there couldn't be um, merit to that. And we have a lot of cases before us that were brought by state AGs and we'll, we've yet to see how those play out. I think we need to see how those play out in court. Um, but it's just ultimately about actions taken by companies. It's not about the size itself. Um, it's, you know, all of this is framed around a hate for bigness and a willingness to kind of prop up inefficient competitors. And that's really not what this is about. Um, and it's, the high concentration is itself is not an antitrust violation. Got it. And and so Yael and I in a previous show talked about um, what we called Joe Biden's consumer competition push, his executive order on, on competition. Um, what is what do you see as the good and what do you see as the bad in terms of his executive order? Well, this executive order is incredibly broad. Um, I, I would not call that a good. It has 72, I believe, specific directives to at least a dozen agencies. Um, it creates a new Bureau of Competition. I think the overall goal of eradicating certain barriers to entry, especially when created by the government, that's commendable. Um, and there are some aspects of it regarding like, labor and transportation and, um, for example, making hearing aids available over the counter. That sounds good. I'm not that familiar with that area of policy, but um, perhaps there's some good stuff there. Um, 
I, I know a lot of good things have been say have been said about occupational licensing in, in this regard, but it's funny because the executive order itself actually um, mentions occupational licensing as kind of a bad thing um, when it creates various entries for certain minorities and then also um, calls for a re-examination of it. So is it good or is it bad? It, like, it doesn't really know. But the order itself, it has predetermined outcomes, and, and that's problematic more broadly. Um, it's asking, um, for example, the FCC to engage in a rulemaking process, and it's telling them what the outcome that they should reach will be. Um, what's the point of notice, the notice and comment process when there's already a predetermined outcome? Yeah, I, I think with, uh, with a lot of that, obviously, we praised... Uh, from our point of view, a lot of, of talk about uh, open banking, which I think was awesome, the occupational licensing stuff. They even yeah. mentioned a little bit about uh, some competition in the alcohol industry, which David and I were very excited about. Uh, but there's definitely a lot specific to antitrust that was very problematic. Um, Ashley, she's uh, Ashley Baker is our guest here. Uh, in the closing segment here, Ashley, I want to ask you, uh, what are some things that you're working on the, at the Committee for Justice? I know uh, Supreme Court uh, sort of season uh, still ongoing, a lot, of, a lot of trials, a lot of cases, a lot of things coming up. Uh, what should we keep our ears open for here in the next couple of months uh, before everybody heads off to vacation in August? <laughs> Sure. Well, oh, the Supreme Court did just wrap up its term um, at the end of July, as it does every year, and will resume um, the first week of October. Um, obviously, no Justice Breyer retirement news um, you would have heard by now. Um, and we continue to hear these sort of calls for court reform and court packing. We have this presidential commission on the Supreme Court that is going to issue a report in November, which um, will probably say a lot of things and um, it won't make very specific recommendations necessarily. Um, and regarding antitrust, there was finally a deputy attorney general for the antitrust division nominated. Um, it's notable, by the way, that the executive order was issued without someone even being in that position. Um, I, I thought that was um, pretty outstanding. That's, you know, not in a good way that they issued the executive order without a nominee um, even in place and have begun kind of starting the first steps and implementing it. So we'll see how his um, confirmation goes and also what the FTC does. I mean, like I said, they're moving at a fast pace and they're moving quickly in the direction too of agency rulemaking. Um, the last time the FTC had broad rulemaking authority that didn't go so well. Um, so we will see what happens. Well, there we go. We heard it first here from Ashley Baker. She's the director of public policy at the Committee for Justice. She tweets at and Ashley says, and uh, we'll link to her writing uh, in the show notes. Ashley, thanks so much for coming back on the program. Thank you. And just so you guys know, Consumer Choice Radio is a project of the Consumer Choice Center. If you want to learn more about any of the topics that we discuss, uh, you can go to the website of our organization, consumerchoicecenter.org. Plenty to talk about when it comes to the U.S. and Canada and all the policies and how you as a consumer can push back. So hopefully we can get a lot more people involved in these conversations. If you're interested in talking to us, we're always open. Email us at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Look forward to your comments. Please subscribe to the podcast version. Give us a rating. Uh, give us a thumbs up. And uh, we'll continue to take in your feedback and hopefully provide a better program. So we'll be right back after this for our next segment with Bart Madden. You will not want to miss this. 
And welcome back to Consumer Choice Radio, broadcasting here on the Big Talker, 106.7 FM and Saga 960 AM in the Peel region of Ontario, Canada. Uh, we're very happy and proud to have our next guest, a repeat guest, friend of the show. We're speaking with Bartley J. Madden. Uh, he retired as the managing director of Crédit Suisse Holt after a career in investment research and money management. And uh, you can see him and now all over the internet and publishing all about free-to-choose medicine. Bart, I know we mentioned that before, but it's a pleasure to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on the program. Great to be here. So I want to point our listeners over to an article over on fee.org that you put together last month. Promising new legislation could transform the FDA's drug approval process, leading to better treatments and lower prices. We all have had a sort of elementary education on the FDA and their drug process and experimental uh, approvals and everything through COVID. Uh, but tell us about this promising legislation and how you think it merges with some of the ideas that you have been promoting over several years. Sure. Uh, for almost 20 years, I've been writing about free to choose medicine. And there's a book out there, Free to Choose Medicine, Better Drugs, Sooner, at Lower Cost. And the idea here is, is that the FDA, the status quo FDA currently, it stifles innovation. It results in sky-high prescription drug prices. And that should be no surprise. It takes a drug developer 10 years and uh, when you add up all the, all the costs, it's over $2 billion to get the drug approved. And the other fundamental problem with the FDA is that it denies freedom of choice. So that if you're dealing with a serious illness, even a life-threatening illness, uh, you should be free to make a choice advised by your doctor to be able to access a not yet approved drug that's demonstrated safety and efficacy. So that's, those are the fundamental problems with, with the FDA. And Free to Choose Medicine actually, uh, an early booklet was distributed in Japan. And Japan, uh, their version of the FDA and the politicians agreed to made eminent common sense so they passed uh, a version of free to choose medicine called condi conditional approval for regenerative medicine drugs. Now, while I've been making this intellectual argument, uh, Al, Dr. Al Masella, uh, for here again for, for the last two decades, he's been working with uh, brain tumor patients the Masella Foundation for uh, Brain Tumor Research and Information has been a godsend for, for patients, especially younger patients with brain tumors. Now, in, in all of Al's work, uh, he, has, he has essentially coincided with what I've been preaching, and Al was instrumental in the introduction of the Promising Pathway Act. And it is revolutionary. It could uh, change how medicine is practiced worldwide. It is a very big deal. And in, in regards to the FDA, uh, I would love your take on the concept of 
um, reciprocal approval. So the idea that once a drug is approved in a comparable country by a similar regulator, let's say Public Health England or Health Canada, um, many have argued that there should just be one threshold. Um, so if you've gotten approval in the EU, you shouldn't have to go through all of the hoops again in the US with the FDA, FDA and, the, and the, that would really streamline things. Um, do you think that that would help in terms of pricing and access and innovation? Or is it not enough? Do, do, do things need to go maybe a little further? Right. The reciprocity was originally promoted by my friend, Alex Tabarrok at George Mason University. It's a very solid idea. And what was appealing about it is that it could potentially be quickly implemented. Uh, now you ask, does it go the full nine yards? Uh, no, that the Promising Pathway Act is a structural change uh, to the FDA. And here are the key elements. After a drug has passed safety and generated some efficacy, then it could be granted provisional approval. Now you're talking about accessing a drug five to seven years earlier than the status quo. And that provisional approval is for two years. And if the drug demonstrates uh, that it works, good results, it can get another two year uh, window up to six years. Now, if during that six year period, the real world data with patients shows that this drug obviously benefits patients significantly, then the FDA could, could give it conventional approval. Okay, so uh, a key thing in the Promising Pathway Act is a registry, a database that includes all of the treatment results for, for the clinical trials. The, with that database, then you and your doctor would be able to make an informed decision. Do you use an approved drug or is a provisional drug the best option you know, for you? Now, over the years, I mentioned Al Musella, who's working with brain tumor patients. Uh, he's developed the preeminent database. Even the FDA agrees this is the best database in the world for brain tumor patients. And he's got over 30 experts. So uh, a patient with a brain tumor can go to his foundation and get, uh, here are the, the most promising treatments based on all of the data and the experts analyzing it. Now, invariably, the most promising treatments are not yet approved drugs. So that's where you see the compelling need for the promising uh, pathway. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with Bartley Madden, is the author of Free to Choose Medicine, Better Drugs Sooner at Lower Cost. Bart, I have a, a question now that uh, we had you on the program fairly early on in the pandemic. I uh, talked a little bit about the different uh, vaccine treatments and how that, those things have gone through the FDA. Knowing what we know now, you know, we're, we're in July 2021, uh, there's still a lot of people that need to be vaccinated across the world, a lot of countries that need to get access um, in our own country, in the U.S., at least it's gone very quickly. 
The question I have is, what do you think the average person can take from the kind of FDA approval process? You know, is there a lot of things to praise and how quickly things were done? Um, is the emergency authorization, was that the best path to take? Because as far as we know for this moment, they're still not officially approved uh, after all this time, after hundreds of millions of people have taken these shots around the world. Uh, what do you think should be our kind of perspective on that? I think a useful perspective is a contrast. Most people do not understand how the FDA operates. And so that if you think of 10 years, typically from the beginning to when a drug is approved, that's a decade. Now what we see with these vaccines, uh, it's an incredibly fast pace relative to the 10 year uh, period so that uh, people should wake up as to the enormous potential gains to health by restructuring the FDA. Now, earlier I talked about this registry at the Mosella Foundation, which could be duplicated you know, countrywide for, for, with this FDA reform. And so what you have is you have fast paced learning and sharing of data and Let's just say there, there are uh, two drugs that show they're safe and they show modest efficacy. But uh, doctors experiment and by combining those two drugs, you get a, an incredibly good you know, outcome. So the ability to be able to have doctors experiment uh, and use their judgment and then uh, post the treatment results one gigantic benefit would be the identification of subsets of patients. So that, uh, say you have a life-threatening disease. Now there's a provision, provisional you know, drug out there and you're able to access this registry of information and you can see that based on patient's genetic makeup, there's a subgroup of patients who do phenomenally well. First thing you want to do is ask your doctor, do I fit that subgroup? So the idea of having this freedom of choice, fast paced learning, sharing of data, uh, this is a pathway to really get the subtitle of my book, Better Drugs Sooner at Lower Cost. Now the lower cost, we hear so much uh, stuff from the politicians about lowering prescription drug prices. Now, it's, it's, it's an, in terms of economic insights, it's totally empty stuff. Here's how you really could get a radical drop in drug prices. Let's imagine a different world. The Promising Pathway Act is passed. Okay, provisional drugs are able to get out there and a drug developer can charge a fee for it. Now, compared to the status quo, the drug developer has saved 90 to 95% of the cost of conventional drug approval. Just think about that, 90 to 95%. And you don't wait eight to 10 years, the drug developer can be selling that drug if it's safe and generates initial efficacy within three years. 
Okay, now what's gonna happen? More and more drug developers, especially smaller ones with financial constraints, will get in the game. You'll have heightened competition, radically lower drug developmental costs. That equals radical drop in drug prices. And that's, that logic is economically sound. It would work. I mean, yeah, that's that's something that's when Yael and I have conversations with folks, and I'm sure you see this. We, you come, you come up with ops, you come to um, opposition who really want to go the route of, well, why don't we just have the government cover more of this or cover the entirety of all prescription medicine, and really kind of keep moving the goalposts that way, um, but. The, the that 90 percent figure just sounds so staggering to me in terms of the possibility there and it really just takes me back to a comment from a previous guest dr singer who really made the argument that um the fda should really just focus on safety and some modest efficacy and then outside of that should leave things to doctors and patients. And it, it sounds like um, this, this act would, would kind of move things in that direction. How hopeful are you that this moves forward and we actually do see some of this fundamental change? I'm optimistic. Uh, I think with the COVID-19 and the fast access to, to vaccines that uh, the general public is more open to, to having this uh, discussion. And the other thing is, we're really talking about common sense solutions. That's the man who brings you those ideas. Thank you so much, Bart. He's the author of Free to Choose Medicine, Better Drugs Sooner at Lower Cost. You can read his article over on fee.org. We'll go ahead and link to that. Bart, thanks so much for all of your work and uh, hope to speak to you again soon here on Consumer Choice Radio. Great. Thank you for having me. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science, Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at ConsumerCRadio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening.
We in have the name of Jesus. Holy thing.